Uh, well, what a privilege it is to get to share the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus uh, on this Easter Sunday. Last Sunday, we celebrated our 13th birthday as a church plant here in the Letter Streets neighborhood, which means that this is my 14th Easter sermon with this congregation. And Easter sermons are kind of funny things because, in my opinion, if you're doing them right, they're kind of all about the same thing, the resurrection of Jesus, right? He resurrected from the grave. What else is there to talk about? If someone's talking about something else on Easter, I think they're doing it wrong. Anyway, so, uh, but whatever, uh, to say all that, 14 times in a row preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, what amazes me is that it it never gets old. Well, you might have a different opinion. I don't think it gets old. The story remains the same, but the news of the story of the resurrection is dynamic. It's it's multifaceted. There's always another angle to consider, another perspective to appreciate when contemplating, contemplating that Jesus defeated death on Easter. The fact that Jesus rose from the grave means that he is dynamically, actively present in the world to this day. It means that there is new power for living in the present moment and hope for tomorrow. It means that we can have confidence today, a firm foundation on which we can build our lives. Now this evening, we're going to consider how the resurrection of Jesus empowers us for human flourishing. Does anyone out there want to flourish in life? I do. I do. Um, Over the past 10 months, our church, Letter Streets Covenant, has been walking through a sermon that Jesus gave early on in his ministry, a sermon commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount fills up three whole chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in this sermon, Jesus gives us a vision for what life, uh, a life of human flourishing can look like when we live the way that God intended for us. Today I'm going to bring our Sermon on the Mount series to a close, but before I do, let me just give us a quick overview. Um, Maybe you've heard every one of these sermons. Trust me, you probably still need an overview uh, because we forget things. And if you're joining us today and you're just like, wow, the last sermon in the series and this is my first Sunday, well, let me just give us a quick recap. So Jesus goes up, as you guessed it, on a mount. Or for those of us in the Pacific Northwest, we would call it a hill, but it was a a pretty big hill. And he goes up there, and he sits down, and he observes this crowd of people who was congregated around him. Some of them were his disciples, but there were just masses of people who had followed him out to the wilderness, waiting for him to teach them. People who, for the most part, didn't really fit into the mainstream of their society. They were Jewish people who were oppressed by the Roman Empire on the one hand, but they weren't quite at home with the religious leaders of their day either. The priestly class were too elite uh, to relate to, and the Pharisees, that was the religious right movement of their day, taught a lifestyle of extensive religious actions that were, for most people, really unrealistic and frankly irrelevant to the everyday life of a lot of these folks. So these people didn't quite know where they fit. They feel sandwiched between Rome and between the religious elite, and yet they're hungry for God because every human being at their core is hungry for God, whether they know it or not. It's just this innate human thing. We want to be close, spiritually close to the Creator. They're hanging on Jesus because 
it's not working for them. You ever find that your life just isn't working the way you've been trying to live it? It wasn't working for them. But there was something about this man, this, this Jesus, who, who was doing things that only God could do and saying things that only God should ever say. A- and he was humble and gentle. And these folks felt seen around this man that they also deemed very important. And you've heard this catchphrase that I like to say. I picked it up from another preacher years and years ago that Jesus is safe and he's holy. And very few people in the world that I know are a great combination of those two. But that's what makes Jesus so special, is that he's safe to be around. He sees you no matter where you're at, and he's holy. His holiness is not diminished by my sinfulness or by your waywardness or whatever your ness is. Okay, so back to the sermon that Jesus gave. He looks out of this crowd, and he just starts off with some very good news for everybody. He declares that those who are poor in spirit are in fact flourishing, blessed, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And those who are mourning at the corrupt state of the world are actually people who will be flourishing because they will be satisfied by God, not by the false offers that the world has. And those who hunger and thirst for restored relationships and justice, that's basically what righteousness means. They're going to be flourishing because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, belongs to such people as them. And so Jesus begins by preaching the good news that social status and financial status and religious conformity and gender and age and ethnicity, these things are not what makes a person qualified for the kingdom of heaven. Instead, what qualifies a person for the kingdom of God is a deep dependence on God, a deep trust and a deep desire for the way of God to be the way to live. And while that is not easy, it is something, it is something that any of us can be about. It's something that even you and I can desire. So, Jesus starts off with this good news. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I don't know anyone who, when we're honest, doesn't fit into that category. That means right now that you are blessed, that you have the potential to flourish because Jesus said so. And then he begins to share God's vision for a better righteousness, a better way of being people. And if you've been paying attention as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, or if you just pick it up after this sermon and and you you check it out attentively, you'll know that the things that Jesus says pretty much hits all of our sensitive issues. He leaves no stone unturned when it comes to ruffling the feathers of human pride and self-sufficiency and idolatry. So, you know, he just lays it out there, and he starts talking about things like anger and sexuality and marriage and integrity, loving our enemies. He starts to dig and to meddle with our internal motives and our prayer life and our money and our possessions and anxiety and judgmentalism. Now, I know none of you ever struggle with those things, but that's the kind of stuff that Jesus talks about. And so he's an equal opportunity offender of our, of our pride. And then here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this message on how to flourish as a human being, Jesus brings all of that teaching to a point. And this is the text for tonight. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be compared to a wise person 
who built their house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And Jesus continues, he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be compared to a foolish person who built their house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell And then he adds this extra adjective, he says, and great was its fall. Building on the rock versus building on the sand. What is Jesus even referring to there? At least three things, okay? So I'm going to give us three different forms of context that this scripture is talking about. First of all, is this the very specific context? What would a hearer at the base of that hill be thinking about when Jesus is saying, here's the two ways you could take, build on the rock or build on the sand? At that day, roughly a hundred miles from where that Sermon on the Mount took place, the wicked King Herod was making a name for himself by rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And Herod boasted, as did much of Israel, that the temple was being built on the rock. That was a big adjective that he would use in his propaganda. We're building the temple on the rock, impervious to the elements, impervious to the Romans. We're building it on the rock. Build your life in this building project. And many of the Jewish religious leaders, particularly the Sadducees, thought that if they aligned themselves with King Herod, and the Roman Empire, that their political friendships would allow them certain religious freedoms. Does that sound familiar? Okay. But any time the people of God try to align themselves with the state, the state always corrupts and taints the church. The church rarely has the influence we think it will in the state. So in the immediate context, Jesus was redefining the bedrock of what our lives should be built on. While the powers of of the world were claiming that the rock of security was found in political power and in opulence, this massive, beautiful temple, and in compromise with evil, Jesus claimed that following him was equivalent to building on the rock. Only the firm, that's the only firm foundation he claims that we should build on. So that's the immediate context. If you're a first century hearer and Jesus is talking about the rock, you're thinking, oh, Herod's been talking about that and his propaganda just right over that hill over there. Okay, now there's a general context of the passage. What would Jewish people have thought a generation or two generations after that, after that, maybe after the temple had been torn down? What would they think then? Well, language about rain and floods and windstorms slamming into things and into people That's kind of judgment language. It's really common in the scriptures. And maybe the story that most of us have heard is the story of Noah's Ark. It's about rain and floods testing the foundations that humans build their lives upon. Those who build their lives upon power and corruption and evil were judged by the waters. And while Noah and his family uh, built on the, the foundation of their trust in God, a lot of people were swept away by the the rain and the floods and the wind. That imagery, by the way, is the root imagery for baptism. Today we watch Sophia make a public declaration of the sort of foundation that she's trying to build her life upon. 
Like Yahweh brought Noah and his faithful family through the waters of judgment, so those who go through the waters of baptism are declared safe from judgment and the chaos at the end of the age. Just as Noah and his family came through the flood and began a new life, so in baptism a person identifies with the death and cleansing of water only to begin a new life in Christ. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is claiming that those who build their lives on the foundation of trust in him will come through the judgment at the end of the age and be found secure and righteous in him. But there's a third context to this teaching about the two foundations. I call it the universal context. And the universal context is this, that the things that we, no matter what generation we're in, the things that we often find to be our security turn out to be sinking sand. The things that we typically want to bank our lives upon often turn out to be sinking sand. The economy seems so solid for a decade or so, and then you got a war that breaks out, or a recession, or a pandemic, or all of that, and we're reminded that the global economy and the local economy is fickle and cyclical, and it's probably not the bedrock that we ought to be aiming for. When we're healthy, and in youth, I'm putting in myself as though that were me, I'm not quite as youthful anymore, but our bodies seem so solid, we make future plans based on how we feel today, how healthy we are today, we think that the future is endless, everything's going to happen according to plan But when injury or sickness or mental health issues come, or even death, we see just how sandy that foundation is. Many of us build our our foundation, our futures upon relationships with other people, and there's there's a real solidity to that. There's a real, actually, godliness in loving other people well. But anytime we load up our expectations on our partners or on our friends, or on our children, or on our parents, or on our religious leadership, don't do that with me, Um, if we're building our lives on the foundation of other people rather than Jesus, then we're building on the sand of insecurity. And most disturbing, especially in the past few election cycles, but this is nothing new, has been the temptation for people, including people who claim to follow Jesus, to build on the foundation of politics, in putting our hopes in the right or the left or this politician or that movement. And if we do that sort of thing, if we really are building on that foundation, then we're building on the sand. Jesus calls us to build on the rock. And what is this rock? What is the solid ground on which Jesus invites us to build our lives upon? He says, build them on these words of mine. Not not mine, but Jesus's. Build them on the words of Jesus. Jesus says only those who hear his words and act on them build their houses on the rock. Anything else is sinking sand. Jesus equates obedience to his teachings as the rock, not the temple, not nationalism, not power, not prestige, not greatness. And you can understand why people had a really hard time with Jesus why people have a really hard time with Jesus. You know, it would be one thing if Jesus were to say, those who hear the words of Scripture and act on them, or those who hear the word of God and do them. But Jesus is claiming nothing short of divinity when he says, those who hear my words and act on them are building on the rock. 
That is audacious stuff that he's saying. The crowds uh, hearing this sermon definitely understood the magnitude of what he was saying. Because at the end of Matthew 7, we read, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching as one as having authority and not as their scribes. That's their religious teachers. Jesus presents us with the way to human flourishing in the Sermon on the Mount, and at its conclusion, he implores us to live, to build our lives upon him, on doing things that he says and being the kinds of people he calls us to be. Even the crowds recognize that he spoke unlike any of their teachers and as one particular, as one with particular and audacious authority. And he said all of this stuff before the resurrection from the dead. Now, the life of Jesus is not easy to follow. And there's so many ways that that our culture, and it's not just our culture, that human cultures in general, there's so many ways they don't really help us to live out the Sermon on the Mount. If someone calls me or asks me to do something crazy and audacious, I kind of want to see some examples I remember the first time Corey and I went bungee jumping, I was like, I don't know about this, but then I saw some big dude, like a 240-pound guy, jump off, and a little bungee cord worked for him. At, at the time, I was only like 165. Yeah, um, I, I felt like I could do it. I saw somebody do it in front of me. Most of us want assurances. Show me the example, Jesus. Well, what examples does Jesus give us? You know, if we were to take note of Jesus' life just up to the crucifixion, it would actually be pretty discouraging. He was frequently in conflict with other people. We're from the Pacific Northwest. We don't like conflict, right? So already that's a strike against Jesus. Maybe some of you Enneagram 8s like it. I don't like it. Okay, the authorities sought to publicly shame him, question him, even plotted to kill him on multiple occasions. Jesus never married or had biological children, kind of these two golden calves held up in in our culture. He never owned property or a vacation home. He, he, he knew nothing of his, like we don't know anything about what Jesus looked like. You know, I read recently a study that just came out that, sorry, I, I hate this generational stuff because it's so blanket, but it was saying about Gen Z that people would rather be attractive than successful. This is like, a, wow, that's a mind-blowing thing. Like, we don't even know what Jesus looked like, except for that he was beat up a lot. Um, we can imagine what he looked like on the cross And we know that the prophecy in Isaiah 53 describes this one as, like, no one to look at, as a worm of a man. He was falsely arrested, abused, falsely charged, convicted in a clear case of corruption. He was mocked and abandoned by most of his closest friends. He was executed in a most humiliating and painful way. And he's calling us to build our lives on that no thank you. If that were the end of the story, we might be able to respect him. We would maybe even make a saint out of him and have a special holiday for him. We might even venerate him. He would be a hero, a martyr, worthy of a holiday and a memorial for his name, a moral example. But not much more than that. Nobody would want to live like that. In fact, Jesus' own disciples were scattered and depressed after he died. There wouldn't even be a church, I wouldn't even be here talking to you about this most likely, 
if that's where the story ended. What day is it? It's Sunday, and it's Easter Sunday. It's Easter Sunday. And that's not where the story ends. The reason that Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is the high point of the Christian calendar is because without the resurrection, there is nothing else. Something happened on Sunday morning after Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. He was raised from the dead. He appeared to his disciples and then to over 500 people. He conquered death, the greatest weapon of the enemy, and he ascended in authority over heaven and earth. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus has not just made audacious claims. He's shown us that his foundation is truly solid, trustworthy, secure, and worth building on. The resurrection of Jesus proves to us that the foundation of faith in him is worth building our lives upon. We live in a world of cracking foundations and moving sand. And I encourage us to to build on the solid foundation of Jesus who lives and reigns and calls us to come and follow. Lord, thank you for the invitation to life, to following you. Lord, you know each of us where we are at. You know our reservations. You know our fears. You know the things that we are grasping, that we're relying upon, that are shaking sand, but we're afraid to let go. And I pray that you would help us by the power of your Spirit to release our grip on the things that actually lead to death so that we can build on the one who leads to life. Bless you, Lord. Amen.